Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Hi, my name's Ashish Takrar. I'm a doctor and researcher. I am a fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also an attending physician at Johns Hopkins Bayview in their Division of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Takrar, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Now, you're one of the authors of a new research letter published November 14th in JAMA Network Open titled Trends in Buprenorphine Use in U.S. Jails and Prisons from 2016 to 2021. Um, let's start with the. Let's start at the top. What's the context for your research here? There are about 1.8 million Americans currently incarcerated. As many of your listeners probably know, that's more than any other country in the world per capita. And of those 1.8 million, about one in seven suffers from opioid use disorder. And historically, prisons and jails have not offered treatment for opioid addiction. Opioid addiction is treatable, though. Medications such as buprenorphine or methadone in particular, you can really save lives, but prisons and jails just have not historically been sites where treatment is offered. So we wanted to explore how often buprenorphine is being used to treat opioid addictions now and over the past five years. So what did you find? Well, you know, a little bit extra context I'll say is that, you know, historically jails and prisons did not offer treatment, as I mentioned, but over the past five years, a few states and municipalities have enacted some policies to actually increase treatment. Um, so we wanted to see, did these policies make a difference? And what we found is that buprenorphine use in jails and prisons increased dramatically over the last three years in particular. So if you look Three years ago, less than 100 people per day were getting treatment. If you fast forward to May of 2021, that had increased to 10,000 individuals being treated per day with buprenorphine in prisons or jails. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're still really far behind where we need to be. Only 4% of the incarcerated population with opioid addiction actually gets treatment. So though that number of 10,000 sounds great, that still means more than 95% of people behind bars with opioid addiction are not being treated with buprenorphine. And so, you know, the two main takeaways for me, one is that certain states, municipalities really have made progress. At the same time, we have a really long way to go. We need to do everything we can to build on this progress to make treatment universal. Could you expand more on the implications for policy? Yeah. So I think it, helps to look at where have we had success specifically. So let's look at a state like Rhode Island, for example. I really think of them as a leader here. 
2015, um, the governor at the time, Gina Raimondo, she established a task force. They ultimately recommended increasing access to treatment. And in 2017, they actually backed that up with funding. So there were $2 million dedicated annually to actually fund screening and to offer all three approved medications for opioid addiction. They enacted that in 2017, and then they even followed up with research showing that overdoses fell by two thirds for the people who were leaving jails and prisons. So that I think of as the model. So, you know, how can other states or municipalities learn from that? Well, I think for one thing, it's actually putting some money behind this. I wish these treatments were just free and could be available, um, you know, like, like water, but actually even like water, you need infrastructure, right? So. I think we do need to dedicate some funds to this. Um, and the other main thing we need to know is that beyond just the funding, we need to actually coordinate with communities. So, you know, it means a lot to start these treatments and to continue them when people are incarcerated, but we need to have somewhere for them to go after, they're, um, after they leave these correctional facilities. So really funding and linkage are two of the key components. Now, Dr. Chakrar, um, while you have a, see if you have a few minutes, I'm sure you're aware there have been some innovative harm reduction interventions in the news of late, things like syringe service programs, uh, supervised consumption spaces, and safe supply. Um, there are two questions in particular I wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you about. Um, now, in Europe, several nations have introduced syringe exchanges within prisons. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, which you could share? So I am in full support of every harm reduction measure that has evidence behind it. And syringe service programs and overdose prevention sites are two classic examples. These programs save lives. And the way I like to talk about them with other people is, you know, I ask others to imagine if you had someone in your life, a loved one, let's say a sister, who unfortunately developed opioid addiction. If, you know, if that sister of yours was injecting, you would want her to have access to the safest, most hygienic way of doing that to prevent the spread of HIV, hepatitis C, unintentional overdoses, infections, abscesses. So syringe service programs and overdose prevention sites the whole idea behind them is let's provide safer, cleaner, hygienic alternatives to help these people and to help them with trained professionals to prevent deaths and to connect them to care for when they're ready. So they work. Um, there's been a lot of research on them in the public health world. Um, you know, I'm sure your listeners can search for this, go on Google Scholar and search for them, but you know, the jury's not out anymore. These interventions really work in the community. Um, so I'll, I'm just wanted to start by saying that and then to answer your question specifically, what about offering them in correctional settings? Yes, I would favor that and I'd be in support of that. I also though would not recommend prioritizing that as the first next step, just given the context of where we are in this country. So I think we have to face the reality that these individuals face two huge areas of stigma. One is that they're incarcerated, and the second is that they're suffering from substance use disorders. Most people would rather just not think about these two communities, unfortunately. They're often ignored. Um, and when they are paid attention to, it's often in a way that vilifies or de dehumanizes them. 
I wish it weren't the case, but I do think that's the reality. So while we're facing and fighting against that stigma, I also want to be thoughtful about what is what are the interventions that we're prioritizing? And I worry a little bit about jumping directly from where we are now to what will appear to many people as radical interventions before addressing some of the other ones kind of en route there that I think we can kind of use to help get more people on board and get people on our side. So now, and again, thank you so much for your time talking with talking with Dr. Ashish Takrar, fellow in the National Clinicians Scholars Program at the Perelman School of Medicine at University of Pennsylvania, uh, and author and one of the authors of Trends in Buprenorphine Use in U.S. Jails and Prisons from 2016 to 21 to 2021, published in the journal JAMA Network Open November 14th. Okay, moving beyond people who are incarcerated out to to the out to the general public, the city of New York recently authorized two supervised consumption sites to begin operation. Such programs have been operating in cities around the world for the past two decades, successfully saving lives, bringing healthcare and related services to hard to reach high risk populations, sometimes serving as an entry point to recovery services. Um, should other municipalities be considering opening such programs? Yes, I strongly support these programs. Um, and they've been shown to work to reduce overdoses, to actually reduce criminality in the surrounding areas, to reduce the rate of HIV, hepatitis C spreading throughout the community, even among people who don't inject drugs. So they really do work. Uh, I understand some of the initial hesitations some people might have around these. And I think we have to acknowledge where that's coming from. Um, you know. Some of it, I think, does come from stigma and does come from fear. Some of it is, I think, well-meaning, but might be misguided. And there's a fear that if you make it safer to inject drugs, then that might incentivize people to continue injecting. I just want to give voice to that to try to push back on it, um, because what we've seen through research, I can share my clinical experience as a doctor talking to patients every day. You know, what we've found is that when you make it safer to engage in the activity of injecting, it actually makes it more likely to engage these people in treatment in other ways. So it's actually the exact opposite, that making it safer, making it more hygienic, um, and you know, co-locating these syringe service programs with wraparound services, they actually are one of the most important steps we can take to address the overdose epidemic. Dr. Takar, um, do you have any social media or, or, or website? How do people follow the, the, the work that you and your team are doing? Yeah, um, so I am on Twitter. Um, so you can find me at uh, especially underscore APT. And I like to post a lot of the research that uh, we conduct there. So would appreciate the follow. And any closing thoughts for the listeners? I would just like to highlight that the voices of people who've actually been impacted by addiction often aren't lifted up enough. Um, it's hard to be vocal in public about a history of addiction. And so I wouldn't pressure anyone to do that, but there are advocates who have bravely stepped out and have said that they either continue to use or have used in the past. And as much as we can listen to them and prioritize what matters to them, I think we'll uh, 
do better to make the world a better place. Dr. Jakar, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was my interview with Ashish Dakrar, MD. He's a fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Takrar is an internist and an addiction medicine specialist. He's also one of the authors of an article entitled Trends in Buprenorphine Use in U.S. Jails and Prisons from 2016 to 2021, published in the journal JAMA Network Open on November 14, 2021. Full disclosure, a portion of that audio aired on another public affairs show that I work on called Century of Lies. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Advocates for reform of the criminal legal system in Oregon are mounting a campaign to restore voting rights to people who are incarcerated. The Oregon Justice Resource Center recently hosted a news conference on that effort. First, let's hear from Zach Winston, policy director at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. I just wanted to briefly discuss the history of uh, the Restoration of Voting Rights Act. Some of you may know this, uh, it may be new to some of you. Um, This legislative concept came about through direct interactions and discussions with incarcerated Oregonians. Uh, We've received a clear message from them that individuals who are currently incarcerated want the ability to vote and participate in the electoral process. The Restoration of Voting Rights Act was introduced in the 2021 session and passed out of Senate Judiciary Committee. The bill received a fiscal impact statement from the Department of Corrections, which sent the bill to the Ways and Means Committee. Unfortunately, we were unable to get the bill out of Ways and Means. Uh, However, we're coming back to reintroduce it in the uh, 2022 short session uh, in the House, and we're going to start on the House of Representatives side uh, in 2022. So a common question that I receive when when talking about restoration of Voting Rights Act is essentially, why do currently incarcerated individuals want to vote? Um, There are many reasons, but I want to highlight a few. Uh, So approximately 95% of people in prison will return to the community Therefore, decisions made while they're incarcerated will have an impact on them once released. Furthermore, many people in prison have loved ones, including children, who remain in the community and are impacted by the decisions of local officials. Additionally, people in prison face uh, face issues unique to their incarceration that often go unaddressed by public officials. COVID-19 illustrated the issues uh, that people in prison can face. So in October, and I believe that it's now being live streamed on Facebook, just so everyone knows. Um, in October, the Oregonian reported that COVID-19 cases were 10 times higher in Oregon prisons than in the state broadly. Disenfranchising people in prison further allows the state to deprioritize their health and well-being, maintain low wages for jobs in prison, and avoid reducing costs of incarceration to people in prison. Rehabilitation is vitally important uh, for an individual in re-entering the community and the community as a whole. So discovering and maintaining healthy values, habits, and community bonds during incarceration is important to successful reentry. Allowing people in prison to vote will encourage continued engagement in their community and the electoral process, thereby instilling a greater sense of belonging and responsibility. While someone in prison may not have voted before being incarcerated, we as a community, I hope, should celebrate and encourage civic engagement. Over 20 states are considering making this change, and we believe that Oregon can help lead the way. It just requires a simple majority in both chambers to pass. That was Zach Winston, Policy Director at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. Now let's hear from Keita Haynes, State Campaign Strategist with The Sentencing Project. My name is Keita Haynes, and I am the Voting Rights Campaign Strategist with The Sentencing Project. 
Um, I would like to thank um, OJRC and NextUp um, Coalition for putting together this press conference um, so that we all could discuss the importance of including incarcerated individuals in our democracy process. And I also want to thank the legislators um, who are on this call who are supporting this bill because like all of us, I believe that democracy needs each and every single person. Um, and but not only am I the voting rights campaign strategist at the Sentencing Project, but I am also a former public defender. And for years, um, I've been engaged in various different aspects of criminal justice reform with a particular focus on mass incarceration, collateral consequences, and voting rights restoration. Um, like Zach and Anthony and probably others that you were here from, I too have been disenfranchised because of a felony conviction on my record. So sharing this lived experience with those that I am fighting for um, and those who are similarly situated as myself is one of the many reasons why I do the work that I do today. Um, for those that are not familiar with the Sentencing Project, we are a national Washington, D.C.-based organization that has been leading the fight to end mass incarceration for over 35 years. We aim to center the leadership, voices, visions, and experiences of Black people and those most directly harmed by mass incarceration through our strategic priorities to end extreme sentences in the country, number one, um, to protect our youth from adult criminal legal system by seeking alternatives to the juvenile justice system, and also by protecting um, voter eligibility and encouraging full electoral inclusion in the democratic process for justice-involved individuals. For years, the Sentencing Project has worked on voting rights issues and generated national reports with estimates on individuals that are impacted by felony disenfranchisement laws. Um, based upon our last report, which was entitled Locked Out 2020 Estimates of People Denied Voting Rights Due to a Felony Conviction, those felony disenfranchisement laws exclude millions from voting each year, with these laws varying, of course, from state to state. That same study also found that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, leading to record levels of disenfranchisement in this country. The number of people disenfranchised has grown from 1.2 million in 1976 to its current number of 5.2 million, which is a product of mass incarceration and supervision. Of people denied to the right to vote, one in four are currently incarcerated. Felony disenfranchisement laws have created a criminal legal system that has become the primary mechanism that determines who is allowed to participate in our democracy and who isn't. Excluding an entire population of people definitely undermines our democracy, as so many on this call have said. Um, felony disenfranchisement laws came into being to strip away Black political power from them and our communities. With the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, voter suppression tactics like poll taxes and literacy tests have been deemed unconstitutional, while voter disenfranchisement laws continue to be upheld and are the last remaining barrier to the ballot box. To empower communities of color, we must restore the power back to the very ones that will help to shape the communities. Disenfranchising people in prison is counterproductive, counterproductive to public safety. Disenfranchisement laws are practices and practices are not designed to make our community safer and they are not about punishment or rehabilitation, but instead are designed to uphold and maintain a system of white supremacy. The systemic exclusion of these of millions of Americans from our elect from our elections based on race, Jim Crow era laws not only weakens our communities, it also undermines the very legitimacy of our democracy. We can't say that we want to end mass incarceration and support reentry efforts, yet continue to deny an entire class of people the right to participate in our democracy. 
While many states have expanded access to the vote for people who have completed their sentences, only D.C. has joined Maine, Vermont, and Puerto Rico by granting full voting rights to people in prison. This movement for ballot access for incarcerated individuals in prison has steadily gained momentum across the country, with Illinois, New York, California, and of course, Oregon looking to join the number. In order to strengthen democracy and address significant racial disparities, states like Oregon must pass reforms establishing universal voting rights for people impacted by the criminal legal system. Denying ballot access to individuals in prison sends a message that voices don't matter and therefore should not be allowed to play an active role in shaping the communities that most will be released to. This thinking perpetuates a cycle of oppressive systems that have led to mass incarceration. Incarcerated individuals in prison are just as much a part as our democratic process as everyone else. And each state has the responsibility to make sure that those individuals are able to exercise their rights and participate in our democracy in an informed and meaningful way. Because as I stated at the beginning, democracy needs everyone. Thank you. That was Keita Haynes, state campaign strategist with the Sentencing Project, speaking at a news conference organized by the Oregon Justice Resource Center to discuss a campaign to restore voting rights for people who are incarcerated. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Now let's hear from Anthony Pickens, a paralegal with the Oregon Justice Resource Center. My name is Anthony Pickens, he, him pronouns. Currently work for Oregon Justice Resource Center as a paralegal legal assistant. And thank everybody for showing out for this. This is something that touches dearly at my heart. As Zach said, I'm formerly incarcerated as a youth offender. So I went in at 15, got out at 39 on a life sentence by the commutation from Governor Kate Brown. Um, for 24 years, I had absolutely no voice that led anything towards me being affected by my conditions of incarceration by the community I may eventually return to, even when I didn't know that I might return to that community, but I'm here. And so I walked out of prison into a community that I had no say-so for 24 years on how those things would affect my life. And obviously, a lot of the laws associated with those that's been incarcerated is meant to diminish our success in society. But when I went and got my very first identification, I ended up getting in the mail a voter registration card. And when I opened that voter registration card, I had a sense of excitement about being able to be involved in the civic engagement, which could potentially affect my future. And like, this is a real story. Me and my wife looked it up. She probably looked at me like I was kind of crazy because she was like, yeah, it's a voter registration card. But for me, it was something that I never got to experience in my life. And since I've been out and having certain conversations, I've been hearing a lot about the lack of engagement that those who are currently incarcerated would have if they were allowed in the voting process. That's a lie. And I say that from experience. And I'll give a couple of examples about that. One example is that particularly at Oregon State Prison, they have what's called cultural clubs and uh, clubs that help run the facility on the activities floor. And each of those clubs have a literal legislative body from president on down. And part of that process with those involved in this club is the voting process. You vote in who you want elected to serve your community. And every single time those elections come up, which is every two years, there is extreme excitement across the population of those that are incarcerated. It's something that people engage in. It's something that people who aren't even uh, 
constitutionally by the club allowed to vote at that time, do everything they can in order to get the clear conduct so they can get involved in those votes. So the no, the narrative that those who are incarcerated wouldn't be involved in the civic engagement, like I said, is a lie. Another example I give, and this is something I've seen in four of the prisons that I've served time in in Oregon. Every presidential election, they do mock votes. Now, the votes don't mean nothing. when we, when And these are, this is the institution doing the mock votes. The staff are putting on mock votes for the prisoners to come and vote in. The lines go all the way out of the door. People are involved in this process, even though these votes count for absolutely nothing. The individuals that are incarcerated participate in this. And there's a lot of conversation leading up to the election because of this. And so it's something that I can certainly say from lived experience, people will be engaged in. Also, as someone who was formerly incarcerated, I know that when a person is involved in the process, which affects their futures and communities, it makes them feel a part of that community. And when a person feels a part of a community, we are more inclined to care and nurture that community as well. So I think it's a no brainer for this bill to be passed. And it's something that we should continue to fight for. Thank you. That was Anthony Pickens, a paralegal with the Oregon Justice Resource Center. Now here's Jackie Witt, a member of OJRC's Women's Justice Project Advisory Committee. Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, My name is Jackie Witt, and I'm a founding member of the Women's Justice Project at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. I'm also formerly incarcerated, and my uh, statement will be short and sweet. Let's explore what often brings people to intersect with the justice system. Untreated trauma, undiagnosed mental health issues, lack of life skills, poverty. And as we all know, simply being a person of color often dramatically increases a person's chances of intersecting the system. Also, people that experience incarceration often develop similar symptoms as veterans who go to war and come home with PTSD. Allowing people to participate in meaningful endeavors like voting helps individuals recover and build connection to their selves, their lives, their recovery, their government, their communities, their neighborhoods, and their own personal power to make a difference in the lives of the families that exist in those neighborhoods, as well as their families and their own future. People in custody want to participate in civic duties. Please allow people to connect literally to everything that's of value by restoring people's ability to vote while in custody. Thank you. That was Jackie Witt, a member of the Oregon Justice Resource Center's Women's Justice Project Advisory Committee. She was speaking at a news conference organized by the OJRC to discuss a campaign to restore voting rights for people who are incarcerated. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prisonpipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Prison Pipeline has a Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash prisonpipeline. Please give its page a like and share it with friends. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long! Sometimes I find myself alone regretting some little foolish thing Some simple thing that I have done 
I try so hard 